Get ready for unique, rare, and little-known treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to The Amazing World of Radio with Adam Graham. Welcome to The Amazing World of Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. Send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. And uh, this program is always brought to you by the support of our Patreon listeners at patreon.greatdetectives.net. And you can also check out my other program, The Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. Six uh, Old Time Radio Detective programs, one per day, uh, every week. Well, our look at Hamilton uh, continues with a key event, and that is the election of 1800. One of the most bitterly fought campaigns in the history of a republic. And the more you understand about the uh, election of 1800, the more you get that our, our modern-day elections can't quite top it, and you get a taste of that here. This comes from a show on CBS called You Are There. You Are There was a great idea where they would actually have CBS News covering the great events of history as if they were there and it was happening live. It's a great way to experience history. I hope that you enjoy it. And here now from October the 31st of 1948 is the election of Thomas Jefferson. representatives in Washington, D.C. On this 17th day of February, 1801, the members of the House are about to try again to elect a President of the United States. Soon they will take the 36th ballot and hope this time to break the six-day deadlock between Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Jefferson is still one state short of the required nine-state majority, and unless he's elected on this 36th ballot, the events of the past few days indicate that violence and bloodshed will descend on this infant capital. The 16 tellers appointed by the Speaker of the House will poll their states. Then they will drop the votes in the two ballot boxes provided by the Sergeant at Arms. The votes Washington, reported to February 17, 1801, the, the House of Representatives, you are there. CBS takes you back 147 years. It is less than a generation since the end of the revolution which established the United States of America. Now the young republic faces the threat of another revolution arising out of a deadlocked presidential election. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. When CBS is there... You are there. You are there is produced and directed by Robert Louis Cheon. And Walter Hamden plays Thomas Jefferson in today's broadcast. You Are There is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now... 1801, the gallery of the House of Representatives and John Daly. This dramatic deadlock has come about in spite of the fact that Jefferson received the majority of the popular vote. A group of willful men in the Federalist Party, losers in the popular vote, are still trying desperately to block the people's choice. A tie in the Electoral College through this election into the House of Representatives, and here the Federalists are still hoping to elect Aaron Burr when he was meant to be Jefferson's running mate on the successful Democratic-Republican ticket. They think of Aaron Burr 
a lesser evil than Thomas Jefferson. And now, on the 36th ballot, they're still pushing Burr against Jefferson for president. This confused situation. Your attention, please. The Speaker of the House, Mr. Theodore Sedgwick, is pounding the gavel, and it looks as if the 36th ballot is about to be taken, so over to the rostrum. The gentleman from Delaware, the Honorable James A. Beard, has requested that we postpone the balloting for 30 minutes. Are there any objections? Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, we've been confined to this hall for six days. We're like prisoners, eating here, sleeping here, going about in our nightcaps, never permitted to go to our hearts and homes. Why must we have further delay? May I remind the gentleman that his colleague from Maryland is also dying here? If he can risk his life, we can risk another half hour. Are there any objections? I hear none. The request is granted. The 36th ballot will begin in 30 minutes. And as you heard, a delay in the voting. Mr. Bayard, who asked for the postponement, is the only congressman from Delaware. And it has been rumored in this rumor-ridden capital that Alexander Hamilton, leader of the Federalists and a bitter foe of Thomas Jefferson, is nevertheless urging Bayard to switch the single vote of Delaware to Mr. Jefferson. This request from Bayard now for a postponement suggests that these rumors may be true. We shall see. Anyway, the supporters of Mr. Jefferson everywhere are grimly determined to elect the man of their choice. Around the nation, there are demonstrations and threats by armed men, Jefferson supporters, who are preparing to march on Washington. Virginia, Jefferson's home state, is probably the strongest center of pro-Jefferson feeling, so we take you now to Richmond, Virginia, Jack Walters reporting. I'm in the executive office of Governor James Monroe. The roll of drums and the bugle you can hear are coming from the great courtyard below. The Virginia militia has been assembling down there since early this morning. I'd guess that there are about a thousand men here, fully outfitted for a long march. Governor Monroe is here at our microphone. Governor, when will the Virginia militia march on Washington? Upon my orders, Mr. Walter. And can you tell me, Governor, when you will give your marching orders? If the Federalist Party continues to plot treason, we are ready to put it down. If the political knaves of the Federalist Party succeed in their nefarious plot to elect Aaron Burr over Jefferson, we shall avenge this violation of the people's will. I've been in touch with Governor McKean of Pennsylvania. His militia, too, is fully armed and ready. We are prepared to march troops instantly upon the capital for the purpose not of promoting, but of preventing revolution and the shedding of a single drop of blood. But, Governor, there are rumors that some 1,500 Democrats from Virginia and Maryland threaten to assassinate anyone who takes the presidency other than Thomas Jefferson. This is a wild story, Mr. Walters, published, no doubt, by the same inflammatory Federalist paper that accused Mr. Jefferson of the Sabbath massacre of two million people, among them women, children, and 24,000 priests. A slight exaggeration. The Federalists' big wigs must learn that they cannot frighten the American citizens. They should have learned it when the people abolished the Federalist-inspired alien and sedition laws. Their plots against the people did not work then, and they will not work now. Well, thank you, Governor Monroe. New York City is another stronghold of Jeffersonian supporters. We take you there now. Arthur Hannes reporting. Go ahead, Hannes. I'm in the headquarters of the Sons of Tammany. The members of this so-called ancient order here in Manhattan are gathering in this somewhat ancient building to march on Washington. The men crowding this building, which they call the wigwam, wear Indian costumes and long, colorful feathers. 
They're men from the ordinary walks of life, the tradesmen, mechanics, and carpenters, the builders of this growing city. Here beside me is a man who calls himself an independent carpenter, and he's a fiery speaker who just a few moments ago made a speech calling for a march on Washington. His name is Timothy Ryan. Mr. Ryan, will you tell us, does Mr. Burr know that you make speeches against him? I care not a tinker's dam for the opinion of Aaron Burr. He, he's, he's deceived us like a jurist. Well, Mr. Ryan, can you tell us where Mr. Burr is now? As, as long as I have been a member of the Sons of Tammany, I have never seen Aaron Burr step foot in the wigwam. He works through, through his leaders. We will not sully himself to congregate in our midst. Right now, I, I hear tell that he's, he's hiding in Albany, a hundred miles away. And well, he might be to, to escape our wrath. We should not only march on Washington to put down the traitors, but we should also march on Albany and put away Aaron Burr. Mr. Ryan, our reports tell us that Mr. Burr is in Albany because his daughter is being married there. Uh, well, but she... you tell me, as a loyal son of Tammany, Mr. Ryan, did you not yourself vote for Aaron Burr? Yeah, I... That I did. God help me. But I meant him for vice president as all the voters did. It, it is Jefferson that we elected for president, and well does Burr know it. We were told to write two names on our ballot, and we wrote Jefferson and Burr. And we were not told to designate four for president, four for vice president. Any fool knew if he was honest. But Burr has also done nothing to take the first place away from Mr. Jefferson. Well, he's done nothing to give it to him either. Mr. Ryan, in any case, according to the Constitution, the House must now make the final choice. Yeah, well, it's up now, to that's the law. And you men, aren't you defying the law by your march on Washington? Oh, defying the law, are we? Well, then I say we shall change the law. Change the Constitution. But let not the people be deprived of justice and cheated out of the man they voted for. Thanks be to the Lord that we defeated the Federalist Tories by a great majority. But if Burr is elected by the insidious plot of a band of apostates, I say, in vain have we fought for liberty. In vain have we fought the British misrule. I say, you fought to pressers, on to Washington. We have declared we'll be free. And neither bully or coach will deprive us of our natural rights. Thank you. On to Washington. Thank you very on much, to... Mr. Ryan. Right. While we've been reporting from here in New York, we've had word that Ken Roberts in the Capitol has succeeded in arranging an interview with Alexander Hamilton. So back to Washington and Ken Roberts. I'm in the library of the home of Mr. Josiah Quincy, Federalist Whip. Alexander Hamilton is waiting to meet Congressman James Bayard here. And while waiting, he consented to an interview. He has, however, stepped into the drawing room at the moment. In spite of the tensions and threats of violence that are shaking the few buildings in this capital, Washington society has not abandoned its social life. Right now, there's a party going on in this splendid mansion in the wilderness. The music is coming from the drawing room. Mrs. Josiah Quincy, our hostess, is here beside me, and she has offered to tell us a little about her prominent guests. Are they all Federalists, Mrs. Quincy? Oh, no, indeed, Mr. Roberts. Even a member of Mr. Jefferson's party can find a haven of refuge here from the torture of the miserable boarding houses in Washington. Even Mr. Jefferson himself? Oh, good grief, no. Perhaps he would enjoy the excellent company here and your wonderful canvasback duck. Indeed, he'd be welcome. But I suspect that Mr. Jefferson would prefer to be surrounded by, oh, shall we say, more loyal admirers at Conrad's boarding house where he resides. Or a 
sober, I doubt that he's given to the singing of psalms. To be sure, even an atheist may love to sing psalms, but certainly not in close harmony with Federalists. Mr. Jefferson and his minister would deny he is an atheist. Oh, if you'll forgive me a moment, I'll close the door. Certainly. There are many notables gracing this home today. Mr. Robert Fulton, the inventor, is in the far corner of this library. Mr. Fulton is trying to raise capital for a new invention of his, a missile that can be fired underwater from a submarine vessel. Well, Mrs. Quincy has shut the library door, and Gouverneur Morris, the senator from New York, has come into the library with her. They're chatting now, and in a moment, Mrs. Quincy should be with us again. Right now, I can see Robert Fulton thumbing through a volume of Shakespeare. The English playwright is quite a favorite in this library. As a matter of fact, anything English is preferred in the home of a Federalist. Mrs. Quincy told me a blue ribbon evening was passed here last night when the senator from Kentucky read The Merry Wives of Windsor yeah, and the first act of Hamlet of the Ladies. Oh, thank Meanwhile, you. Meanwhile, I brought you Governor Morris, but you mustn't ask him any questions about politics. Thank you, Mrs. Quincy. And uh, thank you, Senator Morris. Do you sure. think, Senator, that Mr. Hamilton will persuade Bayard of Delaware to break the deadlock today by voting for Jefferson? Oh, now, please, no embarrassing questions. Senator Morris has just ended a very weary and dangerous trip from New York. Ask the senator how he liked Washington. Senator, how do you like Washington? <laughs> Washington's fine. I almost got lost in the woods through Maryland, but Washington's fine. We only need here houses, cellars, kitchens, scholarly men, amiable women. <laughs> you, of course, my dear Mrs. Quincy, are the exquisite exception. Thank you, Senator Morris. And a few more trifles are needed here to possess a perfect city. In a word, this is the best city in the world to live in in the future. We hope so, Senator. But as you know, there are threats of destruction of this capital by armed militia from Virginia and Pennsylvania if Jefferson is not chosen today. Do you think Hamilton will save the capital today by uh, saying... Ah, uh, ah, uh, you promised no questions on politics, Mr. Roberts. And I see that you're leading to a question on Hamilton again. My dear, Washington is drunk with politics. The Federalists are like drunken men in their hatred for Jefferson. They believe that Jefferson's ideas on government are ideas of the rabble of revolutionary France. But Mr. Hamilton, alone among the Federalists, has remained sober. He believes, and I agree with him, that if the people want Jefferson, they must have him. A government must be fitted to a nation as a coat to an individual. Thank you, Senator Gouverneur Morris. Uh, now, the door of the library has just been opened and Mr. Hamilton has come in. He's coming toward our microphone. Mr. Hamilton, is it true that you are trying to persuade Mr. Bayard to cast his vote against Aaron Burr on the 36th ballot? It is true that I am against the Catiline of America becoming, in fact, the man of our party. Mr. Burr is far more cunning than wise, far more dexterous than able. If Mr. Burr acts ill, we must share in the blame and disgrace. But, Mr. Hamilton, if your pressure to defeat Burr is effective, won't you then, in fact, be electing your greatest enemy, Thomas Jefferson? Mr. Jefferson's ideas of democracy are a danger to our country. And the prospects of our country under the evil of foreign democratic doctrines and French Jacobism are far from brilliant. The mass of the people are far from sound. Democracy is the most visionary theory. Democracy is a disease, the poison of which is most virulent. Mr. Hamilton, to what specific ideas on the platform of Jefferson are you opposed? Mr. Jefferson would have a government with no army, no navy. A national defense not by arms, but by embargoes, and as little government as possible from within. These are the pernicious dreams which put our country on the steep descent to ruin. But if you are opposed to the democracy of Mr. Jefferson and opposed to the politics of Mr. Burr, how are you urging Mr. Baird to vote? That will be for Mr. Baird to decide. 
But for heaven's sake, let not the Federalist Party be responsible for the elevation of Burr. There is a man in the world I ought to despise. It is Jefferson. But the public good must be paramount to every private consideration. I'm afraid I'll have to take Mr. Hamilton away now, Mr. Roberts. Congressman Baird has arrived. Of course. Thank you, Mr. Hamilton. Not at all. This is Ken Roberts. I'll return you now to John Daly in the House of Representatives. In this committee room of the House of Representatives lies Congressman Joseph H. Nicholson of Maryland. He is the representative referred to earlier by the Speaker of the House as the man who is risking his life here. Congressman Nicholson has just come out of a coma, the result of a raging fever which has not abated for six days ever since he was carried through the blinding snowstorm of last Wednesday. Somehow, as if by a miracle, this dying man gathers his strength to inscribe the name Thomas Jefferson on a slip of paper placed in his hands by his wife. Mrs. Nicholson has just guided his feeble hand as he wrote the name for the 36th time on the forthcoming 36th ballot. Mrs. Nicholson is kneeling beside her husband's bed, supporting his head on her arms. Gently, she lays his head back on the pillow and turns now to our microphone. Mrs. Nicholson, there are some who say that by awakening your husband in his condition to vote, you take upon yourself a dread responsibility. It is my husband's fervent plea. My wish, too. For we are both faced with a more dreadful responsibility than the life of a single patriot. We're faced with the lives, the fortunes, and the sacred honor of a whole people. Of some, I know I must ask pardon for quoting the Declaration of Independence. For there are men among us who seek to bury alive this child of freedom, though it is but a score and five years old. But in this room, ma'am, there are many Federalists who have come out of respect and admiration for the patriotism and the courage of you and your husband. Oh, yes. It is the custom of conspirators to pay homage in the manner that the senators of Rome paid homage to Caesar. I have heard that a certain Federalist fears that my husband takes his life in his hands by his determination to remain here for the final vote and that this Federalist would not thus expose himself for any president on earth. To this summer soldier, I say, do not fear for your life, for you are already dead. The Federalist Party has been pronounced dead by the popular vote of the people. Mrs. Nicholson, I hope that your husband need risk his life no longer and that the Congress elects a president on this 36th ballot. And now, if you'll excuse me, Ned Kalmer reports a heated quarrel in the corridor downstairs. Go ahead, Ned Kalmer. <laughs> Matthew Lyons, Democratic congressman from Vermont, one of the two states whose vote is divided, has just accused John Brown, the Federalist congressman from Rhode Island, of attempting to bribe him into voting for Burr. Only the intervention of cooler heads kept them from coming to blows. They've calmed down a little now, but Congressman Lyons says he's willing to repeat for us his denunciation of the Federalist representative. Mr. Lyons, as you know, spent four months in prison last year for opposing the alien and sedition laws. Congressman Lyons, sir... What did Mr. Brown say that made you attack him? I have been warning him, but the man is ignorant of my principles. He's an agent of the Federalist traitors. But what did he say to you, sir? He urged me to vote for Burr just now, for Burr, and of course I refused. And then he said to me, the scoundrel... What did you say, sir? Yes, sir, that's exactly what you are, sir, a scoundrel. What is it you want, Congressman Lyons, he said. Is it office? Is it money? Only say what you want, and you shall have it. Mr. Brown, sir, have you any comment to make? Yes, the gentleman from Vermont is a liar. Like all atheists are liars, and all the followers of Jefferson are atheists. Now, just a moment. They just despise a moment. the truth as they despise God. 
and their hatred for God is equal to their hatred for those who own property. Oh, what? No. Why, these, these Democrats, these, these paupers, these vagabonds and outlaws, I say take away their vote, or they will pillage our towns and stain our soil with blood. Ridiculous. Perfectly Sir, perfect. I merely want to avoid bloodshed. For if Jefferson is elected, there is scarcely a possibility that we shall escape civil war. But, Congressman, there are some who say that if Jefferson is not elected, there will be civil war. Well, then let it come. It is bad, but less, far less than anarchy or slavery. And I say that it is the Federalist Party that means to have a monarchy rather than a republic. Well, better than rabble rule. But the people will rise up, my dear sir. They will rise up and abolish the indignities of the Federalist Party. By rise up, sir, do you mean revolution by force? No, sir, I do not. That's exactly what he means, no, sir. No, I most certainly do not. My father-in-law was Ethan Allen. And when his Green Mountain boys wanted to storm the jail in which I was imprisoned in order to free me, I urged them to desist and go to the polls to vote for their freedom and mine. And as you see, they voted me out of jail and into Congress. And I shall vote, express the will of my fellow citizens, and continue to cast my ballot for Thomas Jefferson. Well, that is your privilege, sir, but it is also mine. Thank you, Congressman Lyons and Congressman Brown. I have just been informed that Thomas Jefferson is expected at the home of Mr. James Madison. Douglas Edwards is there, so we take you to him now. Come in, Douglas Edwards. Our hostess, Mrs. James Madison, Dolly Madison, as she's known by all, has informed us that Thomas Jefferson is on his way from his boarding house to dine here. We hope to persuade him to make a statement. To all of official Washington, this new house on F Street is more than the home of the liberal Virginian Democrat. It's a haven for tired statesmen. Most any afternoon at four, you'll find the distinguished and talented of Washington and Europe enjoying the sumptuous dinners prepared by Dolly Madison, dinners lasting far into the night. This cordial Quakeress brings a touch of warm Virginia hospitality to Washington to thaw the February cold in the frozen mud of the capital. Her parties and dances and card games have won over the bitterest political foes of Jefferson. Dolly Madison is here with me now. She's wearing her famed white silk turban draped with the large ostrich feathers. Margaret Baird Smith, who writes about Washington society, has said of Dolly Madison that she moves like a goddess and looks like a queen. Yes, yes. That kind of flattery is reminiscent of my old friend Aaron Burr. Before Mr. Madison and I were married, Mr. Burr's extravagant flatteries and promises were meant to blind me to his true nature. And what is your opinion of Mr. Burr now, Mrs. Madison? His methods are the same in politics as they are in love, both deceiving. But let me tell you of some of our guests. They're all waiting for the outcome of the election. We have Joel Barlow, the poet of democracy. And there's a Bonaparte. And here is Mr. Mary, minister from Great Britain. Your Excellency, uh, are your hopes on Mr. Jefferson or Mr. Burr? Well, His Majesty's government does not approve Mr. Jefferson's friendly views toward the Jacobins of France. Uh, my own opinion is that Mr. Jefferson has received the votes of a minority of free men and a majority of slaves. And uh, Mr. Burr, do you approve of him? Mr. Burr, uh, <clears throat> I do not want to seem too critical, but uh, Mrs. Madison's food here is more like a harvest home supper than the entertainment of a statesman. <laughs> and I thought you were enjoying our hams, Ambassador. Oh, but, but I enjoy... if our food is too democratic for you, but we have to sacrifice the delicacy of European taste for the less elegant but more liberal fashion. 
Commission of Virginia. <laughs> this is Noah Webster, Mr. Edwards. He's a Federalist, but he enjoys the company of writers here. He's a writer himself, you know. What are you writing now, Noah? I'm working on a compendious dictionary, my dear. Good heavens, what sort of a dictionary is that? A compendious, an adjective meaning briefly stated, succinct, concise, containing the substance in narrow compass, condensed, abridged, synonym, see church. <laughs> I see. Well, uh, as a Federalist, Mr. Webster, will you give us your compendious opinion on Mr. Jefferson and his supporters? They are rabble threatening the safety of the state. From my observations, republicanism is impossible unless the poorer classes are excluded from the vote. Witness how the mass voted for Jefferson. Witness how they are now corrupting law and order, descending upon the capital with pikes and muskets in their hands. Savages. Primitives. Too stupid, too abject in ignorance to think rightly, and too depraved to draw honest deductions. You might do your dictionary a service, Noah, by consulting our vice president, Mr. Jefferson, for a more compendious definition of the people. For here he is now. Mr. Jefferson, this young man has asked if you'll make a statement to him on the election. Well, now, uh, I believed it my duty to be passive and silent during the present contest, lest some Federalist senators accuse me of being partial whilst I yet preside over the Senate. But uh, what is it, sir, that you would like to ask me? Uh, Mr. Jefferson, do you favor or oppose the threats of imminent violence raging about this election? Whose violence? The violence of the Federalist Party to use up the people's will? Or the violence of revolution that keeps governments in order to remind them of the rights of the governed? I refer, Mr. Jefferson, to the actions of the militias of Virginia and Pennsylvania. Should that violence cause civil war or revolution, would you still hold favor with it? Yes, if the will of the majority of the voters is denied by a cabal of selfish interests bent on the destruction of democracy. But some argue, Mr. Jefferson, that the public good will be best served by keeping the peace and avoiding violence at all costs. I know there are men who would prefer that I sacrifice my principles for the guarantee of safety. But I say this is a threat and is itself pregnant with violence. I believe in a jealous care of the right of election by the people. I believe in a mild and safe corrective of abuses which are lopped by the sword of revolution where peaceable remedies are unprovided. Even if force must be invoked, the vital principle of republics is the absolute acquiescence in the decisions of the majority. Mr. Jefferson, earlier in this broadcast, Alexander Hamilton derided certain aspects of your platform, particularly your belief in democracy. Would you care to comment on that? Mr. Hamilton has a perfect right to his opinions. He has no faith in democracy. I have. I believe in and I was elected on these principles. Equal and exact justice to all men, of whatever state or persuasion, religious or political. Peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. The supremacy of the civil over the military authority, the diffusion of information, and the arraignment of all abuses at the bar of public reason. These principles form the bright constellation which has gone before us and guided our steps through an age of revolution and reformation. The wisdom of our sages and the blood of our heroes have been devoted to their attainment. They should be the creed of our political faith, the text of our civic instruction, the touchstone by which to try the services of those we trust. And should we wander from them in moments of error or alarm, let us hasten to retrace our steps and to regain the road which alone leads to peace, liberty, 
and safety. Mr. Jefferson, those are things that can't be said too often, I think. Well, that's very nice of you. Thank you, Mr. Jefferson. We've had word that the 36th ballot has been taken in the House of Representatives, and the results are about to be announced, so back to the House and John Daly. The 16 tellers are down there on the floor of the House checking the results of the 36th ballot now. And by the way, we tried to get Congressman Bayard of Delaware to tell us whether he would swing the single vote of his state from Mr. Burr to Mr. Jefferson, but he refuses to make any comment. Sitting up here in the gallery is Alexander Hamilton, uh, watching the proceedings down on the floor. And the Federalist Party leader seems a weary and disillusioned man. Whether uh, Mr. Jefferson or Mr. Burr should win this election down there on the floor, it is going to be Alexander Hamilton who is finally the loser. The congressmen in the House are silent. There's a sense of high expectancy. All eyes are on the tellers. They're comparing totals. Seem to be in agreement now as one of the tellers is writing the results on a piece of paper. But there is no indication, no sign on the face of the tellers as to whether or not the deadlock has been broken. A while ago, there were rumors that the Federalists... Uh, a teller has handed the paper now to Speaker Thomas Sedgwick. He glances at it. His face is impassive. There goes the gavel down to the rostrum. The results of the 36th ballot. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, 10. Yeah. It's Jefferson by 10 states. One more than is necessary. Jefferson has been elected. The members of the House of Representatives and the spectators in the galleries have broken into wild, jubilant cheering and applause. Jefferson picked up two votes on that last ballot, one more than was required, and Mr. Burr lost two. I'm going to try to find out which state broke the tie and which cast the blank vote. Perhaps it was Delaware, maybe Maryland and Vermont, but we'll soon know. We'll know in a moment as soon as we... Washington, orders, February 17, 1881. You have been listening to The Election of Thomas Jefferson, another broadcast in the series You Are There, produced and directed by Robert Louis Cheon. The Election of Thomas Jefferson was written by Joseph Liss. Walter Hamden was Thomas Jefferson, and the cast included Thomas Chalmers, Carl Swenson, Joan Wetmore, Bernard Lenro, Guy Sorrell, Anne Seymour, Eric Dressler, Walter Grise, Doris Dalton, William Podmore, Charles Webster, Gavin Gordon, Bert Cowlin, and others. Next week... April 9th, 1865, Lee and Grant at Appomattox. You are there. Next this afternoon, great music comes your way from the New York Philharmonic Symphony. This evening, great comedy with Amos and Andy, now exclusively on CBS, and with Hollywood star comedian Eve Arden, your favorite schoolteacher, in Our Miss Brooks. This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Welcome back. A great uh, dramatization, and as and as we heard last week with Cavalcade, uh, they took a lot of quotes from uh, that taken directly from people and 
put into dialogue. It definitely gives you a flavor of the time. And as I mentioned in the opening, the rhetoric definitely at a fever pitch in this uh, time of crisis. This uh, type of issue would... Uh, not recur again because of the passage of the 12th Amendment. Under the original system, each elector cast two uh, votes, and the winner would become president, and the second place finisher would be vice president. The system didn't anticipate political parties, and everybody casting their vote for the same two people. And so the Constitution was changed, so we have our current system, where the president and the vice president are elected on the same uh, ticket. Each elector votes once for president, once for vice president. Of course, as the uh, focus of the series on Hamilton, uh, his role in this drama is well uh, done, and it portrays him as someone who knew that he was going to lose, but did his best to make sure that the country got the best possible outcome out of it. Well, next week, we'll return with some key events of 1804 as we shift to the most well-known incident in the long life of Alexander Hamilton, and that was his death in the duel. So be sure and join us back here next week for that. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.